Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today, we are continuing our mini-series on maritime China with an episode on Chinese shipwrecks found in Southeast Asia and what they tell us of Chinese shipping and trade. And to tell us all about these, we have the best of the best, as we always do. And today, it's none other than Mike Flecker, who not only knows a great deal about these ships, but he actually excavated them. In fact, Mike has overseen seen some of the most important shipwreck excavations in Asia over the past three decades. They include the 9th century belly tongue wreck, the 12th century flying fish, the 13th century Java sea wreck, the 15th century Bacow wreck, and then two wrecks from the 17th century, the Bintuan wreck and the Vung Tao wreck. So together they represent an extraordinary collection of Chinese maritime history, all found in Asia. Asian waters. They tell us a great deal about the maritime aspirations of China, manufacturing, engineering and transport on the Maritime Silk Road. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the excellent Mike. Mike, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. Great pleasure. Um... How did you first get interested in shipping in this part of the world? Because uh, you've just told me that you're from Perth in Australia, which is not in Singapore. It's definitely not in Singapore. And I was in Perth, Western Australia, becoming a civil engineer, uh, which indirectly led to become a civil engineer in Singapore for a mere two years. And then the, uh, the gentleman that owned the engineering company sold up and followed a lifelong dream of hunting for a Manila galleon. Mm. And uh, there wasn't a great deal of work going on in Singapore, so he uh, suggested I come and join him on the hunt for the galleon. It was in Saipan. So I went along mm. initially as the diving supervisor. I dived with him quite a lot uh, in various places in Southeast Asia. So I began without any archaeological background, but we spent two years excavating gold jewellery from the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción, sunk in 1638. And uh, you can't... 
bring up stuff like that every day without becoming extremely intrigued by what it's doing there, why it was there, who made it, and where it was going to. So that was the, the beginnings of my archaeological career. It's a wonderful story, and I think it's a reminder for all of our listeners that um, life can take you in strange ways and you end up doing things you never expected. I, my career path is um, not quite as exciting, but certainly uh, certainly as unexpected, I think. So um, let's talk about the pattern of Chinese trade in Southeastern Asia. What, what are the different types of evidence we have to understand it? Uh, in in light of the Chinese trade it's, that's been around uh, because they have so many commodities that are in huge demand uh, initially throughout Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean, uh, being ceramics, being silk, the one that they, they name the maritime silk route or road after, and iron. Iron is often not discussed, but in pretty well every shipment containing Chinese ceramics, regardless of the vessel type, there's a, a large quantity of wrought and cast iron. So all those things were in great demand, but until well into the second millennium, they were all transported by Southeast Asian, Arab or Indian ships. So you have mention in texts within the first millennium, China, China ship uh, as a translation, but the interpretation should not be a Chinese junk. It should be a ship on the China trade. So we don't actually get archaeological evidence of any Chinese junks trading throughout Southeast Asia until well into the 12th century. Mm. So do we, um, I shouldn't think there are that many of them from that long ago, is that correct? No, well, there, there's a couple pop up. Uh, the oldest potentially is a, uh, a very disturbed site off the very northern tip of Borneo. It's called the Tanjong Simpang Mangayao wreck, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, mm. And that was on the eastern route, the eastern route coming down the South China Sea. And there were just remnants, small remnants of the ship structure. And it was, it seemed to be a, like a temperate wood, a cedar or fir with iron nail holes through it. So it was only the Chinese junks that used the iron nails. All the Southeast Asian and other vessels didn't have any iron fastenings at all. So that can only be dated by the ceramics. And I believe it's Southern Sung, so 1127 to 1279. So that's a rough indication. It's a junk, but there's no indication of what the structure was really like. Uh, and so the first really powerful evidence is the Nanhai Wan that was spectacularly excavated in China and brought up intact into a dry dock. And that sunk in 1183. Yeah, that's a, a, a vessel I've seen. I've been to Hailing Island in Guangdong. It was amazing. An extraordinary thing. Let's just talk a little bit about that while we're, we're on it. So that's, uh, again, 12th century, is that correct? It's late 12th century, yeah. And it's been quite accurately dated by some ink writing on some of the porcelain on the ceramics. Yeah. And um, um, tell us about the other, the other artefacts they found on board, because there's a, a, a huge number of artefacts that were raised on the Nanhai one, correct? There was a massive amount. I think the ceramics is about 160,000 pieces alone, plus Chinese coins and uh, I believe 120-odd tons of of iron. So when I mentioned before there's these iron cargoes, I I don't know if the Chinese archaeologists were actually aware of what they were in for when they brought this whole wreck up and started digging their way through it, perhaps thinking, I've made the mistake in many, many years ago, thinking that the hold is going to be full of ceramics, only to get down through one or two layers and run into this massive iron concretion. 
So they had iron from stem to stern and the entire ceramic layer that was in contact with that iron became part of that iron. It was like a reef. So it entraps, it entraps the sediment, any coral concretions, and if there's any ceramic stuck to it, it's virtually impossible to get it out. I think they persevered and tried all sorts of techniques to eventually remove that, that bottom layer. Yeah. There was a lot of silver on board her as well. I was just wondering where this, where was the silver and the iron coming from in China? Do we know that? Uh, we do. There's various um, places where they were producing the iron. I believe a lot of it was produced further north and it was therefore shipped down to the southern ports where all the ceramics were, were loaded uh, through just uh, coastal shipping, Chinese coastal shipping. But there hasn't been a lot of research done on it and there's a lot more scope there. So... The cast iron in particular, China was the only place that had the technology to create cast iron well into the second millennium, I think around the 14th or even 15th century. So that was in huge demand uh, as a finished product. They would send down cauldrons and, and woks. I found one wreck with woks with hexagonal handles. They were all stacked just slightly offset in like a helix. It was an amazing thing to see in the concretion. Um, so that was in demand because nobody else had it, such a high uh, heat conductive material for a cooking vessel. But then there was also wrought iron, and wrought iron was produced in Southeast Asia, in fact, very high quality. So it was, for example, wrought iron coming from Sulawesi is what they would use to make the Indonesian kris, uh, which was extremely high quality metalwork. I mean, the Chinese wrought iron was mass-produced, so it was actually lower quality. It had quite a high sulfur content, which made it brittle. And yet, I think it was uh, commodities of scale. It was worth buying that lower quality at a much lower price. So that was also in, in big demand. It came down as a raw product, mm. as uh, little finger bars. And where was the... I mean, I'm just thinking about that wreck, the Nanhai One, so off Hailing Island. Do you... Um, do we know where a lot of this Chinese trade was coming from? Was it, was it all from the southern ports or was it all from, from like the entire coast of China? Uh, these cargoes, they're predominantly from one province. So you get the ships a bit earlier on. I mean, as you get a bit more recent, there's a bit more uh, diversity. But there's a couple of wrecks down in Southeast Asia, early 12th century, and the ones heading for the Indonesian islands to uh, Sri Jaya, Sumatra, in Sumatra, uh, you have almost all ceramics from Guangdong. Yeah. And you get another wreck of exactly the same period, say the first quarter of the 12th century, and it's heading to Borneo, coming down the coast of the Philippines on the eastern route, and almost the entire cargo of ceramics was manufactured in Fujian, further north. Mm -hmm. So there's that split uh, between those two. But as you get into the 13th, 14th century, they tend to have a bit from, from both places and then you'll invariably get a few higher quality pieces, maybe gifts, uh, maybe personal trade of a particularly wealthy merchant and they will be coming from northern kilns or central kilns. I suppose that means that the Grand Canal, the, which runs, for those of uh, our listeners who don't know, in, in China, it's a very ancient uh, piece of maritime infrastructure running from north to south. I suspect that played a very important role then in getting trade down to the southern port so that the trade can then go by sea to Southeast Asia. Is that is that fair? That's, that's a reasonable assumption, but there's also the possibility of just coastal shipping. So uh, many of the vessels were designed just to trade up and down very close to shore, relatively shallow water, 
And so the the generalization is that the ships coming down the coast with, I assume, the iron as well as some of the northern ceramics were flat-bottomed and yeah. they had these massive rudders that could be lowered well below the uh, the, the bottom of the ship. They didn't actually have a keel. They were flat-bottomed completely and the rudder served to a large extent to alleviate the leeway, but they also, or at least some of them, had leeboards, much like some of the, the Dutch sailing ships had leeboards. Yeah to stop their sidewards drift. But uh, when the vessels started voyaging into the South China Sea, they weren't, they were, they were trading in the monsoon. So the Northeast monsoon, they'd go, go with them down to Southeast Asia. They'd trade, they'd fill up their hold and they'd sail back with the Southwest monsoon. So it was a perfect situation. But of course there are variations in the monsoon wind. So at some stages you would be reaching or even tacking into the wind. And so they adopted like a, a semi-V-shaped hull, I believe, from the Southeast Asian ships, their predecessors. What about the rigging for the ocean-going Chinese ships? Was that significantly different to the coastal ships? Uh, I suspect not. I think the rig itself uh, wasn't really influencing it so much. It was more the shape of the hull. But it's very hard to determine, so I'm, I'm working mostly with archaeological information. That's one thing that we see very little of, is the rig. So our only indication we can get are essentially the mast steps. So we find these tabernacle uh, partners where the mast was stepped right down on the keel uh, for the southern vessels. And the the main mast is, is massive. It was so, so large, in fact, that it didn't have to be stayed. So it was at the base of it, it fit between these tabernacle partners on a huge block of timber and they were braced to the side of the ship uh, and additional bulkheads were either side of it. And we've got some vessels where there's enough of the hull surviving pretty well up to deck level where you've got these huge braces that come from the uh, the sides of the ship bracing the, the mast part the way up and that's, that's probably why they could do it unstayed. But then you'll find the foremast. The foremast is sometimes stepped right above the foremost bulkhead, so it's almost sticking out of the bow. It's like a mm-hmm. vertical bowsprit almost. And they, they're often stepped at uh, deck level or braced at deck level and just come down onto the bulkhead. And then sometimes there's a really small mast stepped right towards the stern, like a mizzen, that's completely stepped on the deck. And sometimes mm-hmm. offset. It's a bit of a strange setup. It's not on the centre line. I wonder if they help with manoeuvrability. They allowed the craft to kind of spin by by exerting pressure right at the very bows or right at the very stern. Potentially, but uh, I don't know how that would explain the offset from from one side to the other. It was only something they used on the small mizzen. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. I'd love to know. Um, let's talk about some of the wrecks that you've excavated. There's a there's a wonderful list here. Let's start with the Vung Tao wreck. Um, tell us about that. Well, the Vung Tao was the first wreck that I actually got to direct myself, so that's really uh, significant, a wonderful memory. It was way back in 1991. Uh, it was found in Vietnam by fishermen, as almost all of these pre-European wrecks are, because there's nothing in the archives. They don't have archives for the essentially merchant-owned vessels well before the Europeans and their big companies, such as the Dutch East India Company. So they're found by accident, sometimes in trawl nets, sometimes hand fishing, and they'll start catching uh, non-pelagic fish, like reef fish out in the middle of the ocean. And then uh, sometimes with these iron concretions, there's a bit of ceramic stuck in a concretion and a hook will get onto one of those and they'll pull up a, a nice little bowl. And, of course, they make far more money selling Chinese bowls than they do catching fish. So 
looting is quite a, a big issue. But the uh, Indonesia, sorry, the Vietnamese authorities found out about that and it went to the Vietnam Salvage Association, which is government owned. It's called VSAL. And they went down there without any previous experience on old shipwrecks. They're mostly oil and gas and had a wonderful time excavating this glistening blue and white porcelain from around 1690, end of the 17th century. And they found hull remains and they worked on all the material within the hull remains. And then they pretty well finished it off, realized that there's a bit more there, but they don't really have the funding. So they invited a Swedish gentleman to go in there and uh, do some survey. And he was sufficiently interested to go ahead and do the excavation himself for a percentage. At that time, it was not being funded by the government. So they were willing to give some to a commercial outfit that would then go and sell to recoup their, their costs. So he did that and he actually invited me to go in there and supervise the excavation for him. So as it turned out, instead of being an empty hull, what the Vietnamese divers had discovered was half of the hull. So the ship had a very significant keel and it canted over when it got to the seabed and the cargo spilled out both sides. The hull rotted away on the, the side that was sticking up above the seabed and the, the lower side got buried. So they found the buried part that was preserved. And when I went back there, we found nearly three times as much ceramics as they had excavated from within the what turned out to be the starboard side, which had all fallen out on the port side. But there was no structural remains on the port side. It was just these masses of ceramics, including wooden barrels with little octagonal dishes stacked within, so hundreds of dishes. So that was uh, uh, really exciting. And it was a very high... Uh, proportion of intact ceramics on that and we did some research after the event and we had some coins I think we had uh, we had an ink stick in fact and the ink sticks were made in China it was compressed ink like a, it was a powder but it was compressed into a little bar and they put beautiful very detailed decorations on the ink sticks they were a, an item of art as well as functional and one of them, apart from having a decoration, also had a cyclic date on it. And so we interpreted that cyclic date to 1690. And then looking at the, the cross-section of the ceramics, really wonderful quality blue and white from Jin. Uh, and then there was some Southeast Asian ware, what some people call kitchen ching, not the same quality. There was a lot of white ware from De Hua. And there were quite a lot of non-ceramic artifacts that seemed to have a a market for Chinese people, and yet it was coming from China. So the, the obvious destination at that late stage, late 17th century, was Batavia, current mm. Jakarta. So that was a Chinese junk that was coming down to supply both the Chinese enclave in Batavia, but also to be transshipped onto the Dutch vessels and go back to Europe. The pre if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This wreck you mentioned, you said it was going down the eastern route. Is this one following the western route? Yes, this is going on the western route. And there was a combination. There were Dutch ships were going up to, to China, but then there was a lot of resistance to them going to China. So sometimes they had managed to get into southern Japan. Uh, but it was much easier once they, they got the message out for the Chinese junks to bring all of that material down to Batavia. And then the Dutch could just sit there and wait for it. And in the meantime, send out trips to the Spice Islands, for example, to line up, load up on all the spices, which were in more demand than the ceramics. The ceramics were sort of secondary and more of a paying ballast, but they did end up paying quite well. But the uh, the other thing I didn't, didn't mention before about the Vungtau ship, it wasn't a purely Chinese junk. It was actually what's called a Lorca, which is partly Chinese design and partly Portuguese, at least Portuguese initially. And then maybe if they carried on for other years, it would have been European in general. So a European-China China combination. So the hull was very much V-shaped. Instead of just having a, a fairly small keel, as the southern Chinese junk has, it had a substantial keel with large deadwood. And at the aft end of the deadwood, just like a, a European galleon, for example, it had the iron uh, pintle and gudgeon, the hinge for the rudder. Whereas the Chinese never had a hinge for their rudder. They could be raised and lowered through a sort of a key in the stern. So that was a purely uh, European feature. Um, it had a false keel. It had uh, the, the keelson on top of that fastened through the, the various frames. The frames themselves were eventually incorporated in purely Chinese junks, but not necessarily that early. And it had bulkheads. So the bulkheads were completely a Chinese feature. And the planks, the hull planks and the bulkhead planks were edge joined with iron nails driven in diagonally, which is also a purely Chinese feature. So it was built in China uh, through with a combination of Chinese and European shipwrights. Oh, I see. I was going to ask that, whether we think it was Chinese shipwrights who'd adopted European ideas or whether we think it was Chinese and European shipwrights working together. I suspect with the 
pretty large influence from both sides. They were working together, but the the method of construction would be very different. So you got the Europeans, they would build all the frames first and then put the planking on. Uh, and in this case, yeah, with the with the bulkheads also, I think the bulkheads would give that nice cross section that you could put the uh, all the planking on as well. But in between the bulkheads, they had the frames. And then on top of the frames, they had ceiling planks. And again, Chinese junks of pure Chinese design never had ceiling planks. They just had bulkhead to bulkhead, quite narrowly spaced, sometimes only a meter between bulkheads or a meter and a half. And the cargo would be stacked directly onto the, the hull planks without ceiling. Mm. Going back to your ink stick, do you know how they turned the powdered ink into ink? Did they heat it up or add water or neither? No, we, we also found on board a wonderful ink stone. And the ink stone is a particularly high quality one. It's from the Duan Mountain in, in China, D-U-A-N. And they're purplish color and very fine grained stone. And they uh, carve out a depression at one end, sometimes with a decoration. This one actually had a decoration from distant memory of a dragon. And so you rub the ink stick on the flat section and then you add some water and then the, the ground up ink will mix with the water in that depression on the ink stone. Clever stuff. And you said the pottery came from Jingdezhen. I, that's fascinating. I've been there. It's a wonderful place. Tell us a little bit about pottery manufacturing there. Uh, well, that's been the primary uh, point of production for the export markets going way back before the blue and white was even uh, invented, so to speak. So the blue and white, which is so famous throughout the world, actually, uh, the first blue and white that was made for mass production and export was in the Yuan Dynasty and probably around 1340 or so, 1330. And for a very short period, it uh, was perhaps uh, stopped when there was a, a rebellion, the Red Hat Rebellion uh, shut down the imperial kilns in Jingdezhen. I think it was uh, 1352. And there may have been some of the other kilns still working, but if they were, they were also shut down by, uh, what was it, 1371, because the Ming came in and they sort of put a, put a stop to all trade. So it was a very short period, but the UN Blue and White is extremely impressive collections uh, in Indonesia. There was a lot in uh, Trawulan to the east of Java. And there's these wonderful collections in the Middle East uh, and in India. So it was really highly sought after. And then later on in the Ming Dynasty, there was beautifully produced stuff also coming out from Jingdezhen. But there was a there was like the sort of Ming gap. There was actually a ban on trade on porcelain for a long time. And the, the Thais actually came in and filled up that, mm. that uh, dearth of ceramics for Southeast Asia. But then they carried on. So all of the blue and white you find right through into relatively recent times, well into the Qing dynasty, is all coming from Jingdezhen for the higher quality. But then there's a, a lower quality, uh, which is coming from the Changzhou kilns, which is also in southern Fujian. And interestingly, in Southeast Asia, they were more interested in the Changzhou ceramics than they were in the higher quality Jingdezhen. So when the Dutch came in, the Dutch had very few things that, that China was interested in trading apart from silver coins. And Southeast Asians weren't interested in anything, woolen stuff, there, not much interest in that. And so the Dutch cleverly started trading in the ceramics from Changchou so that they could use that for trading, sub-trading again in the Spice Islands. And Japan was also very interested in the Changchou ceramics. So it wasn't only Jingdezhen. 
But no, then they have stuff. many, many uh, different kilns throughout China. Yeah. Uh, Mike, tell me about the Bacal wreck. Uh, this is interesting because it's it's a, a very old one. Yeah, it's not certainly not the oldest, uh, but it's sort of the one of the last of a series, in fact. So you've got those earlier ones like the Nanhai one, uh, and the Bacal was actually dated to the early 15th century. So mm-hmm. sometime after 1405, we found a coin on there. It was the earliest date was... 1405, maybe 1403. And so that's contemporary with Tsung He's voyages, Admiral Tsung He. Yeah. So the, the Ming came in, they put a little ban on trade, and then this big expedition got put together. So that was uh, not, not necessarily a trade. A lot of people actually suspect it was more military than trade. Others uh, object to that interpretation, but uh, I'd be inclined to go with that a little bit more than purely for you know trade. And so this vessel, there's a small chance that it was actually within, within the fleet. Now, the interesting thing about the Bacal wreck that really makes it stand out is it was a flat bottom ship. So we found the, the bottom of the hull, the planks were not really planks, they were almost square section. And there was no differentiation going from all the way from port to starboard. There was nothing to mark a center line. So there was no larger plank, nothing deeper. Uh, and yet there were remnants of all the bulkheads across there. There were the standard frame against the bulkhead, but no intermediate frame. So it was very much a Chinese junk, edge joined with iron nails, but flat bottomed. So there's some speculation that Cheng He was taking so many ships from the south for his expeditions that took place over many years, many fleets, that they had to actually bring in less appropriate vessels from the north to fill the gap. Mm. That's fascinating. I wouldn't like to have been on it. <laughs> it seems to have sunk anyway. <laughs> Certainly not when it sunk, no. So she may have had the, the leeboards or taking full advantage of the monsoon winds and just sailing with the wind and anchoring up when it wasn't in her favour. But the other thing with that, that vessel is it was far from a purely Chinese cargo. It had a lot of Thai ceramics and had some Vietnamese ceramics. So there is a possibility with some of the turmoil going on and immediately after Tsung He's voyages that everything was shut down again. So if this wreck dates a little bit after the, the voyages, then she may have just been a, like a lone junk that was trading from Ayutthaya, for example, in Thailand. So some of the ceramics are being smuggled down from China to Thailand and then they're taking it on there like a, an entrepot port with a gathering of ceramics from various places. They're all loading it at once at that mm. port. And then they're heading down to Indonesia. Mm. What an exciting place to have been. Um, the, tell us about the, the shutting down of the trade. That seems odd to have happened at the same time that they're organising massive international voyages. It, it was very odd. Uh, and it sort of depends on the philosophy. So when the, before the UN, Southern Song, a lot of the trade was based on tribute system, or at least they paid lip service to the tribute system. So there was a Confucian philosophy, which frowned on trade. Merchants were a lowly class, probably very wealthy, but frowned on. And so there was this tribute trade. And then when the Yuan came in, the Mongols came and invaded China, they were very much in favor of trade. So it really ramped up. And that's part of the reason that with such a short production period of Yuan blue and white porcelain, it spread so far. And then the Ming came in, 1268, 1271, there was a transition period. Uh, sorry, 13, uh, 71. And then it was sort of shut down immediately when the Ming came in and assumed full power. 
over the region of Jingdezhen. And then Cheng He comes along in 1403, so only a few years later, and this big voyage goes on. And as soon as his voyage gets shut down after a decade or so, there's a ban again. So there's been quite a lot of uh, research done into it, uh, and it's been termed the Ming ban. And it wasn't continuous, it was up and down. But it was significantly, or it was well enforced enough that uh, the Thais actually began massive ceramic production themselves. They'd already had some production, but it really ramped up. And more significantly, they started building their own ships. So there's a, a type, a specific design with a lot of Chinese influence. They had bulkheads. And the timber of the hulls was almost exclusively teak, which is only from Southeast Asia, from Thailand, from Burma. So if you start looking at the, the list of wrecks that have been found and documented, which unfortunately is not that big a list, you will find from the late 14th right through to the early 16th century, almost all the wrecks are South China Sea tradition, Thai vessels with Thai cargoes. Yeah. To mention bulkheads a couple of times, let's just talk quickly about that because it's one of the most distinctive aspects of Chinese maritime technology. It is, and it goes hand in hand with the term watertight. Mm. So they're, they're often described as being watertight bulkheads. So the bulkhead itself, which is a solid structure spanning the vessel, imparts a huge uh, additional strength to the ship. Um, and watertight is a wonderful idea because if you have rotting hull planks and one hold floods, then the rest of the ship will carry on and still have plenty of flotation. But there's quite a few vessels I've worked on, both South China Sea tradition with their Chinese-influenced bulkheads and Chinese junks. And when you get down far enough into the hold and remove all of the cargo, you'll find limber holes going through the bulkheads. <laughs> and some of those are sort of a half round, so potentially you could have a bung to put into that. Mm. But when you see the, how densely packed these, this cargo is, and I'm sure you've observed it on Nanhai One, there's no way to get down to these limber holes. Yeah. So you're sort of relying on there being a sort of a channel at the bottom of the ship for the water to funnel in. At some point, they would have had a bilge pump system, which I've never found on a Chinese junk, unfortunately. And that water just flows from one to the other through those limber holes. They weren't watertight at all. It's, um, it's uh, worth mentioning that these are the ships that have sunk and you're excavating their wrecks. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> no, it's fascinating stuff. And I, I, um, it's, it's one part of um, maritime technology I think we'd, I'd love to investigate more. And on the idea of finding a Chinese pump, I bet they, they had the most fantastic Chinese pumps. Their, for their <laughs> I'm holes. sure they did. Yeah, yeah. Are we looking forward to someone finding one of those? Listen, Mike, um, I've really enjoyed that. There are so many wrecks we still haven't spoken about because we've been rabbiting on for too long. Um, maybe we'll come back and talk a little more in the future. But thank you very much indeed for your time. Great pleasure, Sam. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please explore our back catalogue. And if you're interested in maritime China, we've already published an episode on the great explorer Zheng He, and we have many more to come. Next up is a discussion of the extraordinary maze collection of model junks in the collections of the London Science Museum. These are model ships that were handmade by Chinese shipwrights in Shanghai and Guangzhou to demonstrate particular traditions of Chinese shipbuilding. 
We also have another forthcoming episode on the six Chinese passengers who were aboard the Titanic, and that is one hell of a story. Do please watch everything that we've produced on YouTube. There are some fantastic videos there that will change the way that you think about the maritime past, I promise. Do please remember that the podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. You can find the Lloyd's Register Foundation's History and Education Centre at hec.lrfoundation.com. .org.uk. It's fantastic. And please, in particular, check out their latest project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature. Just Google it. Maritime Innovation in Miniature. Filming the world's best ship models with the very latest camera equipment. I can tell you that we have, in the last few months, been to Stockholm and also to the International Maritime Organisation and the London Science Museum. And that's all coming your way very soon. The podcast obviously also comes from the Society for nautical research so please go to sedr.org.uk and join up it's a brilliant way not only of finding out about the maritime past from the very best in the business but also of meeting people it's just really lovely When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.